today, as we begin, I, I want you to, to think about the church for a second. Uh, the church is a, is a great wonder. Uh, it's a phenomenon of sorts, if you think about it. Um, this past week, on Thursday, uh, I went on a field trip with my oldest daughter. We uh, took a trip to Waco and then down to Georgetown. Um, and while we were in Georgetown, we visited the Interspace Caverns. Anyone been to the Interspace Caverns before? All right, there you go. Uh, you know, as a little kid, I always saw it on the billboard when you drive south of here, um, but, but never visited to it until a couple of years ago, and then this week I got to go with my daughter. But I want you to look at these pictures. You've never been before. It's quite a sight. Um, that's kind of interesting how that looks. But anyway, but yeah, there you go. So, so that right there is, is underground. Um, these are caverns. Caverns is, is a, are a, a bubble underground. Not a cave, but a, a, a bubble underground where you have these rocks that form these amazing formations. And there's proper names for it. You guys could probably say them a lot better than I could. I don't even know where to start. But um, there are these great rocks and they're alive. These rocks are alive and you can feel the life in there because they're dripping with water and they're continually to form these straw-like things from uh, the ceiling and, and these huge uh, columns. Um, it, it's an amazing thing. This is all underground. And what's amazing about it is in, 19, in the 1960s, they were building I-35. And they were building the bridge. In fact, you can see the bridge today. And when they were building it, they were digging. And when they started to dig, this is what they found underground, which is amazing to me. And they, they dug. You can still see the holes in uh, the ceiling of this cavern that, where the guys who were digging came down. Can you imagine these construction workers just digging, doing their job, and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, they come upon this amazing phenomenon underground that nobody knew was there. Um, but it's hidden, unless obviously now you can go to Interspace Caverns, but it's hidden underground in this bubble, a great and beautiful, amazing phenomenon. If you think about it, that's the church, this great phenomenon, this great wonder, this, this beautiful body, but it's not hidden. It's not hidden. It, it's supposed to be visible. In fact, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. He said, you are the light of the world in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp, put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, let your shine, light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, the mission of the gospel is to change us, to be bright and shining light for Jesus, that we would reflect his glory. He who is in us, that he would shine through our lives. And that is what we will see today in today's text. And that's what the church is. That this beautiful wonder, this, this phenomenon is the Holy Spirit. His presence now comes and lives inside of us and literally changes our hearts. And that's supposed to be evident to the world. And we see that right here in Acts 4 and 5 this morning. And I want us to see this. This is the beautiful picture of the church that has recently been birthed here in Acts as we've been reading about. And so look at verse 32. Listen to what it says about this church. It says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart 
and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. The first thing you see this morning is this phrase, the congregation of those who believed. Who is this? This is the church. Specifically here, this is the church in Jerusalem. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, we're going to see this morning, it's the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. And that's what you have here, the congregation of those who believe. They believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's who the church is, a body of believers. They're part of the body of Jesus Christ. And believing in Christ changes everything. We're going to see the effects of that in just a second. But before we do, let's think about that for a second. What does believing in Christ look like? I love the words of Paul. I want to show you real quick in Titus, up on the screen real quick, in chapter 3, 3 through 7. Listen to the words of Paul to his brother Titus. Listen to what he says. He says in uh, verse 3, I need to get there. There we go. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Pause there for a second. Paul's saying here, this is once what we were like. This was our former life. And I want you to listen to these words, deceived, enslaved, meaning in bondage to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice. And, and so here you have the, the heart that is bound up in worldly things, the heart that is bound up in sin, in lust, in the pleasures of this world. That's who one is before they know Jesus. That's what depravity is. We see depravity all around us. We've seen it all this week in headlines and stories all through news. We see depravity every day in the depths and the darkness of it. And that's what Paul says, we once were all this. But look at verse 4. Listen to what he says up on the screen. He says, but when the kindness of our God and our Savior and his love for us When it appeared to mankind, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his great mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so God came to us, right? He appeared to us in great mercy. And not only that, he has washed us, he's changed us, regenerated us, renewed us, given us a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us in verse 6, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or made right by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a powerful passage there. We once were this, now we're this, by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who has now changed our hearts. No longer bound to the things of this world, but now our hearts are bound to God. Our heart is bound to Christ. That's the prayer that's echoed in the hymn we just sung by Robert Robinson that John was talking about, come the fount of every blessing. Remember what it said? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Men, those who are here Tuesday night, we, we talked about this hymn. 
And what's the emphasis there? Lord, bind my heart to thee because I know the ugly flesh that still lives inside of me, that sinful flesh that loves to raise its ugly head, wants to come in and and bind my heart to the things of this world. Oh, Lord, bind my heart to thee. And when we believe in Jesus, like this church right here in Acts 4 has, when our heart is bound to him, something happens. There's great change. There's great effect to our life. And what is that? What is believing do to us when we believe in Christ? The first thing that we see this morning, look at the text again real closely. It says, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Your text may say one mind. What does that mean right there? It means this, that faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people. Hearts bound to Jesus are tightened in relationship to people and specifically here to those in the church. The use of the word one there speaks of unity and that's what the church shared. There was unity among those who believe in Jesus. They're knitted together as one body with one heart, one soul. And that's what believing in Jesus does. It transforms us to where we love others. We're united to others, the church. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Listen to what he says. For even as the body is one, yet many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, but also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. You see, when we believe in Jesus, we become part of the body of Christ. We become part of the one another community. We become part of this community here that's described of having one heart and one soul. And so the first effect of believing this morning is that you and I now have a love for people. We have a love for people. Where before is about what we could get from others what gain we could get, what benefit we could get from others. Now, we love people. We care for people. That's the first effect. We're part of this one heart and soul community. We love each other. We're united. The second effect is this. Look at verse 32 through 35. This congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Look at 33 and on. He says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners uh, of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. And so what's the second effect that we see this morning? Second effect we see is this. Believing in Christ cuts the bond of love to things. As the heart is loosened in relationship to things. So the second effect is belief in Christ cuts the bond of love for the things of this world. It loosens our hearts relationship to the things of this world. 
So what do we see here? There's two things going on. Belief firms up our love for others. It causes us to love others. But at the same time, we're free from loving things. You see what belief does? It it changes us. Here's what Jesus told his disciples when he was here on earth. In Luke 12, uh, 32, 33, Jesus says to his disciples, Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And listen to what he says. Sell your possessions and give to those who are in need. What is that verse telling us? What was Jesus telling his disciples? The opposite of fear is what? Trust. He's saying here, trust in God. Trust in the promises of God. Don't be afraid. And what trust in the promises of God does, it produces a freedom from fear, right? When we trust in God, we experience freedom from fear and guilt and anxiety and worry. And we're set free to what? To love others. We're set free from the love of things of this world and we're set free to love others just like Jesus said, so that we will what? That we will take our possessions, even sell them, and being willing to give them to those who are in need. Jesus told his disciples that, and now look what's happening in the church. They're doing it. They're doing it. Why? Because they've been set free from fear. Why? Because they've trusted in Christ. It's changed their heart. It's changed their life. And so what are they doing As a result, the church is caring for the needs of others. The context of this writing is in a day where the economical situation in Jerusalem is wretched. It was deteriorating. In the first century, due to famine, to political unrest that was present, employment opportunities were continuing to decline, and unsaved Jews started putting pressure on Christians, both economically and also socially. And so what does that mean? There were needs abounding in the church. And so as the needs abounded, look at what 32 says again, verse 32. It says, they claimed that anything belonging to them was not their own, but that all things were common property to them. So you see how belief in Christ has changed them? They have love for others, and their love for the things of this world have been loosened. They no longer abound to the things of money, of consumerism, but now their heart is bound to Christ. They love others, and they're willing to care for others. So much so, listen to what they say. They use the word that all things were common property to them. That's an interesting word. That word common right there struck me this week. In the Greek, it's the word koina, uh, K-O-I-N-A. And why is that interesting? Because it comes from the word koinonia. And some of you in here that's been in church in a while, you, you hear that word, and your, your eyes or your ears kind of perk up a little bit. What does koinonia mean? It's the word fellowship. Sometimes you hear the phrase that the church is the the koinonia community, the koinonia people. They're, They're the people that are in partnership. They have fellowship to one another. And so in this interesting, when you read this text, it says here, all things were fellowship property. That's how they viewed their possessions. They owned personal possessions, but they didn't consider them to be private. 
Rather, they viewed them as literally the fellowship's property. And so the church's unity manifested itself with a sense of responsibility for one another. If somebody had a need, they stepped up. They stepped up. And people's needs were cared for. And so this love for people compelled them to do what? To share what they had. As they would sell things, take them to the apostles, and as the needs arose, the apostles would take care of the needs of the people in the church. And that's what love for people does in action. In fact, listen to what John says in 1 John 3, 17 through 18. John says this. He asks a question first. He said, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's a real convicting question. He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So believing in Jesus changes us to be firm in our love for, for people, free from the love of things, so that we can care for the needs of others. And so that our stuff is really fellowship property. Think about it, that's, that's tough in a world like today because we love our things. We, we like our things. But what the gospel does, it, it, it changes us to where we have this open hand. We no longer have this closed hand mentality, but we have this open hand that we will freely give of what we have to help meet your needs. That's what happens with the gospel. It changes us. And then look at verse 33. I find this very interesting. I like this verse. Hey, look at what it says. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. It's interesting. What did they just pray for last week? You remember in Acts 4, 29, 30, and 31? The church prayed to God. They said, listen, God, give us more confidence and boldness in our witness they even said, Lord, may you continue to extend your hand of healing. May you continue to do uh, acts of, of miracles with signs and wonders. And then what does God do here? God answers their prayer. As the power of God is great and upon the apostles. He gives them boldness to witness. But look at what's at the center of their witness. What is it? Look at verse 33 closely. They were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is huge. Because this is the source of power. This is the source of our strength as believers. Currently right now online we have devotionals for you, for you daily that you can use just as a supplement, uh, as a resource to encourage you. And right now we're going through Ephesians, and we're right in Ephesians 1, right around these verses, I think even this morning. In Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, listen to what it says, because what I love a lot of times is I love to read about doctrine and theology in, in Scripture, but then I love to see the practice of it. I, I love to see the result of it. And so listen to this these two verses, and then is it not what is happening here in Acts 4? But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. He says that we may know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. 
There, or excuse me, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead. Is that, is that not what is happening here? Because that's what the apostles were saying. There was great power on them as they gave testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the power of God is evident. We're going to see how in just a second. But it is evident. And so the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, Romans 8 tells us, lives in those who believe. The church. He is our source of power. He is our source of strength. And that's what the church testifies to. Something practical real quick. This is kind of a little side note. Not really chasing a rabbit, but a side note. Something practical here. What were they witnessing of? In verse 33, what were they witnessing of? The resurrection. Sometimes, we were talking about this as a staff this week and our, our staffing. Sometimes when we witness, where is a lot of our emphasis on? The cross, right? Which is great. Our emphasis is on the death of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, which is Awesome. But when we witness, when we testify of Jesus, it's also got to be on the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no hope of forgiveness of sins. The, the, the cross is rendered powerless if Jesus is still dead. And so the apostles here testify to their hope. Jesus is alive. And that's why we can stand in here today and say, we have hope of the forgiveness of sins because Jesus overcame the grave. That's our testimony. Jesus is alive. That's why we believe what we believe. That's where our power, our strength comes from. And so it's not to limit the cross. No, it's to empower the cross for what Jesus came to do. No, it's to tell the whole story. But you can't leave off the resurrection. It is our hope. And so the church, what's interesting is you see here, they, they witness to the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think what Luke wants us to see, Luke is writing Acts, Luke wants us to see something here. It's not just about rhetoric. We see the importance of that, of preaching and teaching. Peter and John last week with their testimony to the religious leaders and their preaching on, in Acts 2 and so on. It's not just about rhetoric. It's not just about miracles, even though all that is huge. But what we see in this text as well is that it's the witness of love. You also must have the witness of love. And so I would conclude from this. When we see in verse 33 where it says that the great, uh, with great power the apostles were giving testimony... There was great power in their witness of the work of Christ. There was great power happening all around them. People were being healed. We saw that with the healing of this lame man. But not only that, but there was a great power in their love for one another. What does Jesus tell his disciples in John 13, 35? He says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. So that's going to be pretty powerful stuff, right? The world's going to know that we belong to you? What is that? And then he says at the end of verse 35, by your love for one another. Wow. 
so the, what makes this happen is also in verse 33. Listen to what he says. The abundant, at the end, the abundant grace was upon them. Abundant grace was upon them. What does that mean? The church was enabled to do the works of witnessing, was enabled to love others and give of the stuff they had. Why? Because of God's grace. God's grace. It's all about the grace of God. That we continue to walk in the grace of God. It's our source of strength. It's our source of power. And God enables us to love each other just like this church does so that we can be the one heart and one soul community. But I want you to see this. He gives us two effects, and we've got some time to do this. Two effects, but I want you to see real quick, because this lands. There's two examples he gives, two instances he pulls out, Luke does, and he says, this is happening in the church, and I just want to show you how real it is. And then look at verse 36. Listen to what he says. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian, birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated and means the son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land. He sold it, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. And so I love what Luke does right here. He says, hey, let me give you a real life, real guy who is a great example of the church and what they did. And his name is Barnabas. And what's interesting about Barnabas, he calls him the son of encouragement. And you know what the Jews would do? They would many times call somebody son of fill in the blank, all right? Like son of mercy, or in this case, son of comfort, or son of encouragement. And what they would do is they would look at the character of somebody and then give them a name based on that character. And so that's what they did with Barnabas, right? And so it'd be like if we... We're talking to somebody, let's take Dan for a second. I'm just kind of trying to think of my name. Dan, I would maybe give Dan and say, son of truth. Dan is a man of truth, loves the word of God. He stands on truth. Somebody like that. Look at Chris in here this morning when Chris laughs and carries herself. I got a picture out of your lap, but, but and she smiles and just getting to know her. You know, sister of joy. I mean, so you take things like that and you could do that with, with people. And so that, wouldn't that be cool if we kind of just started doing that, kind of giving each other nicknames? Some of you could be like, uh huh, this could be fun. This could be fun. Watch it, Eric Davenport. I mean, this could be fun. I mean, right? I mean, this could be really fun. So anyway, but they did it out of kindness. So here, so, so, <laughs> so, so Barnabas, all right, loosen up a little bit. So Barnabas is a son of encouragement. And so, so that was his character. So what is it? He was a man of integrity. He, he was a man, evidently, who could lift somebody up and comfort them. But it, but it wasn't just with words. We see right here in verse 36 and 37, it's with his actions. He wanted to take people that were in the dumps because of a need they had and they couldn't get out. And he wanted to make sure there was something there that could help pull them out and meet their need. He did that. That's who Barnabas was. Now, it's interesting. Luke pulls him out here because what's going to happen, Barnabas is going to become a main character in the book of Acts. We see him as a missionary. We see him as a, as a preacher a little bit later. But, but what we see with Barnabas is he didn't love money and things. He didn't want to appear more generous than he was. He just seems like this simple guy in these two verses. And he was filled with integrity. He was filled with heavenly mindedness. 
his heart was bound to Jesus, it was evident. It was evident. And when we become a Christian, there's a freedom on the inside that produces a release from the longing for the things of this world and gives us a love for others that practically seeks to meet the needs of others. And that's what we see with Barnabas. But this was not the case with all. And I got to tell you, I, I like chapter 5, the beginning of it. And it just flows. It, this is all connected together. Don't let the, the chapter division confusion be like, well, why are we going to chapter 5 already? I mean, it, it's all one thing. And so, but I like chapter 5 because I think what the beginning shows us is the church is messy. Right? I mean, we, we all agree with that. I mean, Christianity is, is messy spirituality. We, we all got our baggage. We all got our issues. I mean, you see, remember what we read in Titus 3, chapter 3? Paul says, we were all once foolish. We were all deceived. We were all people that lusted and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, so that's, we all have stuff. And the flesh raises up and we all, like Paul says in Romans 7, there are things I don't want to do, but I still do. I still do. And that's kind of the story. And so I like this because it shows us, yes, there's messiness. But I want you to see the heart of the matter because the heart of the matter is the issue. And look what he says. And I'm just going to read to you the 11 verses and then just give you a couple points. And then we'll put a bow on it and we'll go. All right? But listen to what he says. Listen to what he says in chapter 5. But. And so this is connected back to what he just said at the end of chapter 4. So I, he says, let me give you evidence of, of this one heart community in the flesh. Here's Barnabas. But. <laughs> there's a negative turn. A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. That just seems like, like a, a country band. Ananias to Sapphira. A couple that needs to be like a country band. You know, Ananias and Fire, their hit album, My Heart's on Fire. There you go. So listen to this. But a man, they're not though. But anyway, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But, verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Literally, that idea of conceived, that deed in your heart, um, it's the idea, why did you place that deed in your heart? It's an interesting, interesting look into what we do when we are, our heart is hard toward truth and toward God, we will think of ways, right, to be deceptive. And then it says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Some, an important note here, interesting, in verse 7. When they carry out and bury him, when you have a death like this, there's no, let's bring in the embalming stuff. Let's, let's, let's do all that. Let's give him the proper burial. No, it's get him out and get him underground. Why? Because this is the judgment of God. 
It's just like the sin of Achan. If you go to Joshua 7, just write that note, read it later today. It's a great story, sad ending, but it's just like the sin of Achan. Get the sin out of the camp, right? Get it out of the camp. And that's what happens here. There's no time for mourning. This isn't, we're not mourning over this. We're, we're going to mourn over sin, and we're going to get it out of here. Because the judgment of God has fell. Now, so this is serious stuff. I mean, we, we just talked about this sweet community where there's, they're giving, they're helping each other's needs, and then all of a sudden, we got people dying. And it's the judgment of God. And then look at verse 8, what happens. Or 7, I'm sorry. Now, Time elapsed, three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband, they are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in, found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard of these things. Ananias, according to Peter, let Satan control his heart instead of the Holy Spirit. He sought to deceive other Christians by gaining a reputation for what? For having greater generosity than he truly had. Telling them that what he had brought to the apostles was the total payment that he had received when it was only part of it. So think about this for a second. I mean, say Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this piece of land. Say they sell it for $100,000. And say that they want to keep half of it. Say they want to keep half of it, 50000 of it. And they go to the apostles and they take 50,000 of it and they tell the apostles, hey, listen, here's 50,000. This is half of what we sold. Is there an issue? No, there's not an issue. The issue is they sell $100,000, uh, this piece of land for $100,000. Uh, they go and they give 50 grand of it. And the apostle says, this is what you sold the land for. And they're like, yeah, that's what we got. We got 50,000 for the whole land. So what are they doing? It's a simple line. It's hypocrisy. They were trying to be seen as those who gave everything they had when they hadn't. And so what's the issue here? They were, their sin was misrepresenting the gift. They lied. They were hypocritical. Deception toward the church means deceiving the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit indwells the church. And his wife, Sapphira, does the same thing, putting the Holy Spirit to the test, disobeying God. And so the heart of the issue for this couple, there's a few things. They loved their money. But at the same time, they wanted to look more generous than they really were. They lied and were filled with hypocrisy. And therefore, the judgment of God was brought upon them. It was truly sin leading unto death. And that's real. 1 John 5 talks about how important it is that, that we as a brother or sister, if we see somebody who is trapped in sin that could lead to death, that we go to them and try to help them out of that issue and confront them. We also see in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, 
the seriousness of approaching the Lord's Supper to make sure that, that we're walking with the Lord, that, that we're not um, knowingly sinning because he says there are some who are sick who come and take the Lord's Supper in a whole unholy manner because there is sin in their life that they're not dealing with. And therefore, it can be sin leading unto death. And we see it here. Now, on the other hand, we see God's mercy. We see God's mercy. Because all of us, if we're honest, we've all been there before where we've tried to be like Sapphira and Ananias. Where we try to portray that, hey, we're more generous and, and godly than maybe we are. We can be hypocritical at times. And God shows us here that he didn't want pretending. He didn't want this fake devotion. In fact, he wants us to be fearful of hypocrisy. He wants us to be fearful of lying. He wants us to be afraid of treating the Holy Spirit with contempt like this couple did. He wants us to be fearful of faking faith. And he wants us to recognize instead the presence of the Holy, the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit hears everything, sees everything. He knows our heart. He knows what is true. And he's telling the church through this text today, take God serious. He wants you to have a heart that's honest. And a heart that is bound to Jesus is a heart that lives in honesty, that lives in truth. You see, Jesus doesn't want this external conformity to religious expectations. That's not why Jesus came. You see, that's what the Pharisees pushed. And that's what we see with Ananias and Sapphira, this Pharisaic attitude. But instead, Jesus came to set us free internally. That we would have liberty in our hearts so that we could be set free from fear and guilt and sin so that we could freely love people and not things and not a facade. And so I pray today that we would look at this church and say, wow, what a beautiful church. What a beautiful picture of what the body of Christ is to look at. But what's the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is where is their heart bound to? And their heart is bound to Christ. And as a result of that, because they believe in him, they love others. And their love for the things of this world is loosened, lessened, and going away. Because of that, they're caring for the needs of others, and they're doing that with pure hearts, honest hearts, real hearts. And so today, as we close, and John's going to come up and lead us, the question is, is what is our heart bound to this morning? I asked this Tuesday night with the men, and I ask it to you guys as well. What is our heart bound to? A heart bound to Jesus believes in Jesus. Have you believed in Christ this morning? Do you believe in him as Lord and Savior? Let me ask you, at church, do we have a love for people like this church did? Or do we still struggle, and imagine we do, with loving the things of this world? Oh, that we would pray this morning, Lord, bind my wondering heart to thee. I'm prone to wonder, Lord, from 
your ways and your will. Lord, bind my heart to thee. Lord, truly let your goodness be like a fetter to me. Let me be enslaved to you and not bound to the things of this world. God, that's my prayer this morning. And so may that be our prayer as a church. And may we not give a facade. May we be real. May we be open. May we be honest. May we not be filled with hypocrisy. May we not be fake about our generosity. May we just be truthful. May we just be honest. Have that kind of heart. That's the heart of this community that was the one heart and one soul community. May we be like that. Let me pray for us.